Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom in the American way. And our fine landlords got our air conditioning back on. So it's a reasonable temperature in here. Of course, it's a reasonable temperature outside too. It's in the low 70s right now, I believe. And in fact, it's 68 right now outside, which is so sweet. But you know, we're experiencing a climate crisis a climate emergency worldwide and you know we just got a little tiny taste of it uh, over the last three days here in Oregon and in the Pacific Northwest over 200 people dead in Canada there is no collection of statistics to the best of my knowledge of victims of heat here in the Pacific Northwest and I think you know in part that's because it's never been an issue here so we don't know how many people have died here but in Canada, it was uh, well over 200 people died as a result of this heat wave. I mean, directly, according to the Canadian government. So, pretty bizarre stuff. In our program today, I want to get into uh, Tucker Carlson preparing white nationalists for a civil war. Is that going on? It appears to be. And I want to kick off uh, true American patriotism. But I'll also let you know that it being the, the kind of dog days of summer, as it were, Congress is, you know, it's just kind of people going on vacation, people, you know, hey, hey, <laughs> the pandemic's over, although the Delta variant is coming. We'll talk about that, too. So to begin, it's really kind of stuck in my craw that all these right-wing websites have been going after Gwen Berry, who is the, the hammer thrower Olympian of World Net Daily. This is from the writing newsletter this morning. The ignorant ingrate who disrespected the anthem. Whoever wrote this for World Net Daily says, in the U.S. there's far more money to be made and fame to be achieved by spurning the American flag and the national anthem than by embracing it. Well, no, actually in 2019 when she lifted her fist up after competing in a tournament, I believe it was in Mexico, she lost sponsorships and she got a uh, suspension. No, there's not more money to be made. But that's not even the issue. I mean, of course, Republicans are going to look at it that way because they're all about making money, but that's really not the, even the issue. But on uh, Fox so-called news, Dan Crenshaw, the Republican congressman from Texas, came on and speaking of her, she's heading off to the uh, Tokyo Olympics now. Just to back up a little bit, Gwen Berry is this Olympic athlete who uh, came in third in the hammer throw and therefore will be one of the three people who goes to Tokyo to compete on behalf of the United States in that particular sport within the Olympic rubric. And during the playing of the national anthem, which she was told was not going to happen when she was out on the field, that they were going to play the national anthem and then the athletes were going to come out. Well, that's not how it worked out. So she's out there with these other two, the national anthem plays, and she just turned to the side. So she's not, you know, essentially saluting the, the anthem. And so Dan Crenshaw goes on Fox and he says, we don't need any more activist athletes. She should be removed from the team. That should be a bare minimum requirement is that you believe in the country you're representing. Yeah, doesn't that sound like really patriotic, right? 
which raises the question, what is patriotism? Then Meghan McCain, go, you know, she goes on The View and she says, uh, it's not appropriate or patriotic to go to a foreign country, that would be, you know, she's on her way to Tokyo, where you're supposed to be representing America and act like it's just about you. But Gwen Berry made it clear it wasn't about her. Uh, she told uh, the Black News Channel, and a CNN affiliate, she said, I never said I hated the country. I never said that. All I said is I respect my people enough to not stand or acknowledge something that disrespects them. Now, for Americans who don't, uh, principally white Americans, who don't know what Gwen Berry is talking about here, let me just fill you in. Right? I, you know, it's probably a good time to, to, you know, for all of us to learn a little history lesson. Francis Scott Key, who wrote the national anthem, lived in Maryland. He was a Marylander. And he was a slaveholder. He owned slaves. And he wrote the, the Star Spangled Banner, our national anthem. And he wrote it to celebrate the American victory of the War of 1812. And this was the victory at Fort McHenry in 1814, in September of 1814. Specifically, the battle at Fort McHenry was a battle between white American soldiers and a corps, a British corps of soldiers called the Corps of Colonial Marines, fighting on behalf of Great Britain. Now, who was the Corps of Colonial Marines that Francis Scott Key wrote the national anthem celebrating the, the slaughter of? Well, the Corps of, Nash, of Colonial Marines uh, originated in April of that same year, 1814, when British Captain James Ross issued a proclamation that was spread all through the state of Maryland saying that any enslaved person who could flee their plantation and present themselves to British soldiers would be, and was willing to fight on behalf of the British in the War of 1812, would be given transportation to Barbados or England and freedom. And about 300 people successfully escaped slavery, 300 Africans, uh, I guess at this point you could call them African-Americans, although the, you know, America certainly didn't recognize them as citizens. 300 Africans escaped slavery, presented themselves to the British, and that was the British Corps of Colonial Marines. It was a 100% black group of formerly enslaved people from Maryland. And Francis Scott Key, being a Maryland slaveholder, wanted to celebrate their being slaughtered by our troops. And so he wrote the third verse of the national anthem, and where is that band who so vauntingly swore that the havoc of war and the battles of confusion, a home and a country should leave us no more. Now he's talking about the American soldiers. And then the next line, no refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. And then back to, so, you know, yeah, we, we, we slaughtered all 300 of those Maryland slaves who escaped and were promised freedom by the British if they would just fight in this one battle. And then he, and then Francis Scott Key, slaveholder Francis Scott Key, wraps up the third verse, or the third stanza of the national anthem with, uh, you know, go back to the, to the white soldiers. And the star-spangled banner and triumph doth wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. Which is kind of ironic, right? The land of the free. This is a history that Gwen Berry knows, as do many you know, African-Americans. It's a history that generally is not taught in our schools. I certainly didn't learn it in school. But it raises a couple of questions. You know, first of all, Gwen Berry, when she was asked specifically, you know, why did you do that? She said, if you know your history, you know the full song in the national anthem, and the third paragraph speaks to slaves in America, our blood being slain all over the floor. It's disrespectful, and it does not speak for black Americans. So she said that. Which raises the second question, which I'm going to get into in uh, just a couple minutes here, which is, what is patriotism? If the right is accusing Gwen Berry of not being patriotic, because she doesn't want to sing a song that celebrates the slaughter of formerly enslaved African Americans. What is? This is the Tom Hartman Program. What is patriotism? We'll get to that in just a minute. Stick around. 
John in Los Angeles. Hey, John, thanks for uh, listening to KPFK. What's up? Hi, Tom. Uh, I just want to give a quick word of advice. Uh, kudos to Mr. Biden. However, the reason why the GOP doesn't want an investigation is because they're the ones being investigated. And of course. Uh, there are many, many things Mr. Garland can do, like we're not above the law, like when Marjorie Greene threatens to murder Nancy Pelosi, she should be arrested. So all I want to say is this. If they allow this to occur, and once they take over through the rigged elections, they'll probably take Mr. Biden's son and execute him with a firing squad because that's how these people roll. They don't care about America. They don't care about the planet. They care about lining their pockets. And uh, shout out to the GOP. I wonder if they're going over to Russia to find an escape route for this 4th of July. Thank you, Tom, and you have a blessed day. Thank you for all you do. Yeah, thank you, John. The uh, execution of Americans was something that was actually called for by a One American News host uh, just last week. I believe this whole issue that uh, Chauncey DeVega has raised, actually, of st stochastic terrorism, although I've been ranting about that for, geez, all the way back to George W. Bush days on this program. Uh, Joanne in Van Nuys, California. Hey, Joanne, what's up? Oh, okay. So yesterday I was listening um, to David K. Johnson give a talk on the news, and he was trying to alert the public about what was happening at the IRS. Trump's appointment director of the IRS, a man named Reddick, is a big-time uh, tax evader lawyer for uh, billionaires. That's right. He's Trump lawyer. And he is out to change. Right now there's a, a reg or something. They're changing. They're firing 71 very competent lawyer IRS agents who are needed, and they're replacing them with non-lawyer, incompetent, inexperienced lawyers to right. investigate the very wealthy, including Trump. Right. And David K. Johnson was asking people to please call the White House number to get President Biden to fire Red Team. Is that the 202-456-1111 number? The number that I got off the website was 202-456-1414. 1414. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. It is pretty grim, and that's literally exactly what's happening. And this guy has also overseen a general defunding of the IRS. This is something Republicans have been doing since the Reagan administration. I mean, we still have a Trump appointee running the Internal Revenue Service. We still have a Trump appointee running Medicare and Medicaid. We still have a Trump appointee running Social Security. We've got thousands of Trump people in all, you know, just scattered all across government. Can I just say that it was over at D.C. Post, the article, if anyone wants to go check on it. Sure. D.C. Post, David K. Johnson, and it was yesterday. Yeah, D.C. Post is his newsletter, isn't it, or his uh, his website? He writes for it. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, yes, it's, it he does a very good job, David. Okay, and, thank and you. He's been on this program. Thanks, thanks for the heads up, Joanne, and, uh, and for putting all that out as, as clearly and concisely as you did. Thank you. So what is patriotism? What is patriotism? Again, this is kind of the essence of my rant over at HartmanReport.com. And, and I think that this question needs to be raised. You've got over on Fox and Friends and Meghan McCain on The View and whatnot, and all over these, uh, these right-wing websites. You know, uh, as I said today, uh, the ignorant ingrate who disrespected the anthem over at WorldNet Daily. So what is patriotism? I put this question to you and ask your opinion. Is it turning your back on a racist national anthem? Or is it beating Capitol Police with American flagpoles so severely that 100, over 100 of them end up hospitalized, one loses an eye, one dies, one loses fingers, all while trying to overturn a free and fair election? Is that patriotism? Is it raising taxes back to normal on morbidly rich Americans so we can rebuild our country after 40 years of, of neglect? Or is it maintaining a tax system so corrupted since Reagan's presidency that your average billionaire is paying between 1% and 3% in federal income taxes? Is it providing high-quality public education and free or low-cost colleges and trade school and doing away with student debt? Or is it passing laws that support 400% interest payday loans and bailing out corrupt banksters? Is it maintaining an unemployment system that catches people when... It, 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 capitalism does its periodic 
hiccups, which are entirely predictable. Every you know six to ten years, you have a you have a crash and you have an increase in unemployment. Is it maintaining an unemployment system to help people through that, or is it subsidizing airlines and other giant monopolistic industries with billions during those same cycles? Is it feeding hungry Americans with food stamps and programs for low-income pregnant women, or is it spending millions and decades? trying to take away a woman's right to choose to have either an abortion or birth control. The Missouri Congress, the Missouri House and Senate right now are debating literally whether to, whether to ban birth control or, or, you know, or, or refuse to allow the state to pay for it. Is it making sure that Americans who've worked their entire lives have a well-funded uh, social security system? Or is patriotism working tirelessly to gut Social Security so Wall Street can privatize it? Is patriotism helping people have democracy in the workplace, a union? Or is it killing off the union post, a unionized post office, the largest union employer, unionized employer in the United States, and, so that it can be sold off to union-hating FedEx? Which, by the way, I wanted to ship a, a book to a friend of mine in uh, Germany last week. And I went on the Postal Service's website to uh, order, uh, you know, the international shipping envelopes. And guess what? They all have the FedEx logo, logo on them. When did this happen? It has to have happened, you know, in the last couple of years during the Trump administration because, you know, I was shipping internationally before that and it wasn't going via FedEx. So Trump has already started privatizing the post office or DeJoy. Um, but back to patriotism. Uh, is, it, is it making it easier for American, all of eligible American citizens to vote? Or is, it, is patriotism passing laws that make it harder for people to vote while trying to recruit tens of thousands of so-called poll watchers from among the ranks of, of uh, white supremacist militias? Is patriotism solving our homeless problem by making affordable residences available to, to, to all Americans like Finland just did? Or is it demonizing and harassing people driven to sleep in the streets by brutal, unregulated capitalism or mental illness? Is, is, is patriotism providing health care for all Americans as a right? Or is it privatizing Medicare through the so-called Medicare Advantage scam? Or doing your best to destroy Obamacare? Or even blocking half measures like a public option? Is patriotism ensuring that our air and water are clean and pure, or is it passing laws that make it a felony to take pictures of, of these uh, animal feeding operations that are one of the major sources of pollution, in particular air and water pollution in America? Is patriotism working to, to build a green American infrastructure and transportation system, or is it giving $600 billion a year in, in subsidies to a fossil fuel industry that spent 50 years lying to us about climate change? Is patriotism supporting the equality of women and LGBTQ Americans, or is it spreading hate, fear, and division as a media strategy and to promote profits in media and, 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 and win elections? Is patriotism banning weapons of war from our streets and passing basic gun safety laws like every other developed country? Or is it promoting open carry so any grinning idiot who wants to can strut around with an AR-15 strapped on their chest like a giant prosthetic, prosthetic penis? Is it enforcing anti-monopoly laws so that it, to save small businesses and local newspapers? Or is it forcing Americans to, to suffer under these monopolies that cost the average American family an additional $5,000 a year for everything from internet service to, to medicines? Is it working for right racial reconciliation? Or is it fighting to save monuments to southern traitors? What is patriotism? Back with your calls after this. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. 
We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. For the Tom Hartman Book Club today, we're reading from Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think, and Do by Jennifer L. Eberhardt. PhD. This is from the introduction. She starts out by talking about how she's giving a talk to a group of police officers and chiefs of police about bias, and they're all sitting in stone face, cold, you know, kind of glaring at her. And she continues, eventually I stopped with the lessons and the data graphs and the images and the jokes and the movie clips, none of which were working. She was getting no response from the audience. And she says, I decided to veer off my usual script and share a personal story. I explained that some years ago, my son Everett and I were on a plane. He was five years old, wide-eyed, and trying to take it all in. He looked around and saw a black passenger. He said, hey, that guy looks like Daddy. I looked at the man, and truth be told, he did not look anything like Daddy, not in any way. I looked around for anyone else Everett might be referring to, but there was only one black man on the plane. I couldn't help but be struck by the irony, the race researcher having to explain to her own black child that not all black people look alike. But then I paused and thought about the fact that Kids see the world differently from adults. Maybe Everett was seeing something that I missed. I decided to take another look. I checked the guy's height. No resemblance there. He was several inches shorter than my husband. I studied his face. There was nothing in his features that looked familiar. I looked at his skin color. No similarity there either. Then I took a look at his hair. This man had dreadlocks flowing down his back, and Everett's father is bald. I gathered my thoughts and turned to my son, prepared to lecture him in the way I might inform an unobservant student in my class. But before I could begin, he looked up at me and said, I hope that man doesn't rob the plane. Maybe I didn't get that right. What did you say, I asked him, wishing I had not heard what I had heard. And he said it again, as innocently and as sweetly as you can imagine from a bright-eyed boy trying to understand the world. I hope he doesn't rob the plane. I was on the brink of being upset. Why would you say that, I asked as gently as I could. You know, Daddy wouldn't rob a plane. Yes, he said, I know. Well, why did you say that? This time my voice dropped an octave and turned sharp. Everett looked up at me with a really sad face and said very solemnly, I don't know why I said that. I don't know why I was thinking that. Just telling that story reminded me of how much that moment hurt. I took a deep breath and when I looked back out at the crowd in the auditorium, I saw that the expressions had softened. Their eyes had changed. They were no longer uniformed police officers and I was no longer a university researcher. We were parents unable to protect our children from a world that is often bewildering and frightening, a world that influences them so profoundly, so insidiously, and so unconsciously that they and we don't know why we think the way we do. With a heavy heart, I continued with my point. We are living with such severe racial stratification that even a five-year-old can tell us what's supposed to happen next. Even with no malice, even with no hatred, the Black Crime Association made its way into the mind of my five-year-old son, into all of our children, into all of us. I finished the training and invited the audience to come up to ask questions or share their stories. I'd been warned that no one would, but one officer did stay behind in the empty auditorium. As he approached the stage, I stepped down to meet him. Your story about your son on the plane reminded me of an experience I had on the street. It's something I haven't thought about in a long time, the officer said. I was out one day working undercover, the officer said, and I saw a guy at a distance who didn't look right. This guy looked similar to me, you know, black, same build, same height. But this guy had a scruffy beard, unkempt hair, ripped clothes, and he looked like he was up to no good. The guy began approaching me, and as he was getting closer, I had a feeling that he had a gun on him. Something's off with this guy, I thought. This dude ain't right. 
So the guy is coming down a hill near the front of a nice office building, one of those big office towers with glass walls. And as the guy's approaching, I couldn't shake the feeling that he was armed and dangerous. As I got closer to the building, I lost him for a second and I began to feel panicked. Suddenly I see the guy again, but this time he's inside the office building. I could see the guy clearly through the glass wall. He's walking inside the building in the same direction and at the same pace I was walking. Something was wrong. When I quickened my pace, I could see him quicken his pace. And finally, I decided to stop abruptly, turn and confront the guy. He stops too and I look him face to face, the officer said to me. And when I looked in his eyes, a shock went through me. I realized that I was staring at myself. I was the person I feared. I was staring at my own reflection through the mirrored wall. That entire time, I was tailing myself. I was profiling myself. The stories kept coming. At every single session, someone came up and told me a story, stories that enriched my understanding not only of police-community relations, but also of our human predicament. This book is an examination of implicit bias, what it is, where it comes from, how it affects us, and how we can address it. Implicit bias is not a new way of calling someone a racist. In fact, you don't have to be a racist at all to be influenced by it. Implicit bias is a kind of distorting lens that's a product of both the architecture of our brain and the disparity in our society. We all have ideas about race, even the most open-minded among us. Those ideas have the power to bias our perception, our attention, our memory, and our actions, all despite our conscious awareness or deliberate intentions. Our ideas about race are shaped by the stereotypes to which we're exposed on a daily basis. And one of the strongest stereotypes in American society associates blacks with criminality. And she continues, the book is biased by Jennifer L. Everhart, and it's great. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. So what is patriotism? Michael in Los Angeles. Hey, Michael, what's up? Hey, Tom, thank you for taking my call. A great rant today. I just wanted to comment on your on what you said about Gwen Berry, and you know, to me, that is one of the fundamental reasons why critical race theory needs to be taught in this country. Because a lot, because I'm a black man, and a lot of my white friends, you know, they just don't understand. You know, uh, you know, it wasn't until un, until last year that a lot of them learned about what happened in Tulsa. It wasn't until last year that a lot of them understood what Juneteenth meant. You know, it wasn't until last year that Mississippi decided to remove the Confederate flag from their state flag. And it wasn't until last year that we, you know, we started tearing down these Confederate monuments. You know, a lot of people don't know that a lot of the things that were built around this country, from the way schools are funded, to housing, to even infrastructure and things like that, were built with racism in mind. Um, And that includes that national anthem. And that is the reason. It's not that we hate our country. You know, I'm an American. I'm an African-American, but I'm an American, and I love this country. But I can completely understand why we take knees and why we, you know, turn our back when that anthem is being sung, because it was, it was written with racism in mind. And a lot of, of excuse me for saying, but a lot of white people just don't know that. And to right. me, this is the reason why critical race theory is something that needs to be taught. It's something that people need to be educated on, so that way they can understand that, you know? Yeah. And so that was the point I wanted to make my my one slight recalibration of your suggestion would be to replace the phrase critical race theory which is something that academics have been using for 20 some odd years and 99.9 percent of probably all americans certainly of white americans had never heard before maybe six months ago and it has the word critical in it and well and for that matter theory and ra- i mean these are all three three different words that just generally in, in various contexts freak people out and just replace that with the, you know, let's teach the actual history of America. Let's teach the actual history of racism in America. Let's t- teach the ad- actual history of African Americans, of Hispanic Americans, of, of uh, Native Americans, of Asian Americans. Let's teach the actual history. And then you don't get this hysterical response from people who've been watching Fox News and think that, uh, and believe Tucker Carlson that critical race theory means criticizing white people for being white and right. teaching white children that they should be ashamed of themselves, which it does, yeah. obviously. But more and more, what I'm hearing in the media generally from largely African-American commentators is we're not going to use that phrase. We're going to talk about let's just teach the history of America. I mean, for God's sake, it's it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's straightforward stuff, Michael. It's just straightforward stuff. Yeah. 
And I couldn't agree more, Tom. Yeah, and it's such a sad thing that our history has been so whitewashed. And I don't think you have to invoke critical race theory to point out, for example, that you know, in, in the 50s when the Eisenhower freeway system was built as they ran freeways through cities, they used them to separate black neighborhoods from white neighborhoods or to just devastate black neighborhoods. That, yeah. you know, that, that, uh, the, the reason why we, ha why we fund our schools with property taxes, local property taxes, is to keep you know, low-income black neighborhoods having crappy schools so that, so that their children can't grow up and compete with white people on a, on a level playing field. Uh, you know, as a result of a good education. I mean, it, it, these are the things that are built into our system, and we don't have to use uh, words that come from academia to describe them. I think we can do it in plain language. But I, you know, your your point is so well made, Michael. I got I got to move yeah. along, but thank you for the call. Uh, very well said. Thank you, uh, Jeff in San Francisco. Hey, Jeff, what's up? Uh, what's the old saying? Patriotism is the last act of a scoundrel. Last so refuge of, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, uh, Dr. Johnson back in the day, yes. <laughs> but uh, I, I just want to bring up the fact that uh, I haven't heard on your show yet, but July 24th, there's a Medicare for All March nationwide, and we should really try to get on board with that, possibly, if we can throw that out. And to your audience, our audience. Mm -hmm. And um, there's also, what do you feel about this new, uh, Bernie's proposing that if before we pass, they're gonna, there's a lot of progressives going to block this 579, you know, chump change bill for, unless there's a $6 trillion reconciliation bill right. um, that would include uh, lowering the age of Medicare. This so-called um, compromise that they've got uh, five Republicans signed on to, it takes 10 to break a filibuster, they've got five. Um, it's never going to see the light of day. There's no way that Mitch McConnell is going to allow Republicans to vote for that. This is, this is the exact same thing that they did with Obamacare. It's the exact, I mean, they dragged Obamacare out for a whole, a whole year. Um, this is just an attempt to sabotage Democratic efforts to get things done. I mean, you know, Biden is going along with it because, you know, he thinks it looks good and all that kind of stuff. And it's going to, it's going to make people think that he's trying to work with Republicans. But, um, you know, I How guarantee How are we going to do this? How long? I mean, this, we're going to lose 2022 unless I, we get something. With I agree. Meat I am the, the bone. You I, know, it's I, ridiculous. I agree. You know, I'm sorry. I offend your guests sometimes, but <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks a lot for the call. Yeah, you're welcome, Kevin in Durham, North Carolina. Hey, Kevin, what's up? Hey, Tom. I'm glad you're going off on this whole uh, Gwen Berry thing because uh, I cannot believe that this is where they're going after what we witnessed on January 6th. So you oh, it's taking a knee all over again. I mean, you know, that worked really well for them. They got a whole year worth oh, yeah. of worth of hate out of it. it was several years, actually. You had a violent insurrection where they tried to literally try to attempt to overthrow the government and undermine democracy and disenfranchise millions of voters. And they were beating up police officers, officers with American flags. But Gwen Berry is un-American because she did what she did. Um, and I think I've mentioned this to you before. I think what really upsets them is when black people do this kind of thing. Because, yep. you know, black people in their mind should just be grateful. You should just be grateful that you have the opportunity to play in the Olympics. You should be grateful that you're rich and famous, that you're allowed to make millions playing in the NFL and NBA. So... And allowed to is really the is the operative word there, Kevin, in the minds of these yeah. of these white right wing commentators. They don't really consider this our country, so just be grateful for what this country has given you. Yeah. That's how they that's how they look at it. Yep. But uh, the, the the blind hypocrisy and the, the perverted set of values from these people just blows my mind. They care more about symbolic patriotism, symbolic gestures, than they do six hundred thousand dead from a pandemic. They care more about that than they do uh, systemic racism or police violence. Just you know, it, it just blows my mind how where they where where they what they think is important, what isn't. Yeah, yeah, I'm totally with you, Kevin. Thank you, thank you, uh, Nicholas in San Cristobal, Mexico. Hey, Nicholas. Interesting coincidence. First of all, politics and the politicization of the Olympics is not new, as we know. And I'm not talking about Mexico City in 68 with the fists raised, the black fists raised, which, by the way, over time has become to be regarded as perfectly reasonable mm -hmm. by reasonable people. There's a coincidence here. My ex's father 
in the 1932 Olympics in Berlin was the Irish gold winner for the hammer throw. There's an identical coincidence going on here with the hammer throw. Uh And he refused to meet with or shake Hitler's hand for the same kind of political reasons. Wow. So none of this is new. Now, that didn't get great global uh, coverage at the time because of Jesse Owens' coverage, etc. But the Irish were immensely proud of Dr. Pat O'Callaghan, was his name, mm-hmm. and received massive uh, airplay and was uh, offered the presidency of Ireland for it. No wow. Less. The hammer yes. throw guy who refused to yes. shake Hitler's hand. You know, yes. okay, so, the, these hammer throwers, you know, I didn't even know hammer throwing was an Olympic sport until yeah. this last week. Well, it is. <laughs> yeah, it's apparently. to be the most powerful, the one that requires the most strength of all. Yeah, remarkable. Yeah. Nicholas, so thanks. Thanks for taking the call. Yeah, oh, my pleasure. Thanks, and thanks for the for the info. Uh, you know, for the for the learning. I mean, I think 32 Olympics. I think Jesse Owens, as you said, you know, but, uh, fascinating, which uh, kind of blew up uh, Hitler's whole race theory. Mike in Lamita, California. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? In small world, I used to throw hammer just recreationally. Anyway, really? this, uh, got a brief quote, which seems apropos of this whole business, which is that, quote, some super patriots' eagerness to worship symbols of liberty is succeeded only by their passion to punish those who exercise it. Who said that? While, while venerating the symbol, the super patriots profane the substance. Ordered liberty under them becomes our freedom to follow their orders. Wow. That's the quote. From whom? Uh, that's from Mike and Lomita. Oh, okay. That's but well said, Mike. I have, to, I have to credit my big brother, though, because he was commenting about the rich irony of these uh, religious fundamentalists who are insisting that uh, sculpture of the Ten Commandments be placed in front of a courthouse when. One of the first of these commandments is that thou shalt not make any graven images. Mm-hmm. So irony abounds, as usual, with the uh, far right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that first commandment is, uh, has been problematic throughout history, you know, from the, from the Protestant Reformation to uh, the way Islam deals with it. To, uh, it uh, it's a whole fascinating kind of subtopic in history. But, Mike, thank you. That, that was very good. I appreciate it. Ray in Port Orchard, Washington. Hey, Ray, what's up? Say, Tom, this is an idea out of the box about the filibuster, which is a process to make a, a good idea have power so that the you know the minority doesn't feel like they're going to lose their control. The problem is the filibuster is built around a system of public voting, so everyone knows how you vote, which means you're going to pay a price for not voting with your party. I say we can use a filibuster, but you have two votes a public vote, and a private vote, which no one knows how you vote, which means you can shift, and no one knows you shifted. By you as, you're talking about you as a senator, a United States senator. Exactly. Yeah. And, and back when they wanted to impeach Trump, a, a Republican said, I could get 30 senators to impeach him, but they won't do it. It's because they'll suffer. Yeah, I get your point. I, I, what I don't understand is why, uh, and, and I'm guilty of this as well. You know, I've, I've written several op-eds and talked at some length about let's bring back the Jimmy Stewart filibuster. But, you know, I'm coming to the, the opinion that why have the filibuster at all? I mean, why are we trying to tweak something that's, you know, a, an anti-democratic, small-d democratic anachronism? It's, it's you know, from, from 1837 when John C. Calhoun put it into the you know, brought it into the Senate until 1865. It was used exclusively to block discussion of abolition of slavery. From 1865 to 1964, it was used exclusively to block any kind of civil rights legislation. And from 1964 to today, it's largely been used exclusively to block any kind of progressive legislation that would help anybody other, you know, other than billionaires. Well, I, I look at it as a system that is not working. Um, mm-hmm. Because of that, but the thing is, it opens the door for uh, the consciousness of senators to actually vote their conscience without being 
penalized. Right. Well, hope, you know, hopefully, in theory, they, they would be able to do that. I, I think more broadly, maybe a, a, a non-public vote would do that. But people need to know how their how their representatives are voting. I mean, that's the whole point of being able to vote for people. So I'm concerned it might even lead to more corruption. But keep thinking, Ray. Good idea. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. John in Westland, Oregon. Hey, John, what's up? Good morning, Tom. You know, on your topic, a couple things. First of all, I was at the uh, actual, probably the only listener today that was at the ceremony, or at the playing of the National Anthem, which you only did one today. It's not like the Olympics. They only played it at the start of the session. The primer had been held outside the stadium. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's quite a fun event to do, but it's a little technical difficulty to do. Um, but uh, the, uh, having been a track coach and coached it a little bit, but the um, main reason I wanted to call all related to this course, is I've also been a high school teacher now for 27 years, teaching econ and government and history, and I asked this question for a long time, and I think I even brought this up to you a few years ago, but what's the most patriotic thing you can do? And I'll get a few things, be in the military, you know, fly a flag on the 4th of July, all these things. And I said, no, the most patriotic thing you can do is pay your fair share of taxes. Because without that, we're a third world country. Hmm. And by, do, by doing that, that's, that's how your country is strong. And people should willingly do that. But we've been consumed for 41 years by a nation that wants to tell people not to pay their taxes. And the radio and TV ways are filled with commercials that, you know, to avoid paying their taxes, get, you know, pay off your tax debt, you know, mm-hmm. all these things that uh, are really un-American. And we need to start calling it out that this is not patriotic. Call it out on the rich Republicans to say, look, all these corporate people that aren't paying it, that we need to use this against them right now and do a frank lunch and say, guess what? Lynn Berry is very patriotic. She's standing up in the First Amendment, which was put in there on purpose to allow Americans to protest because what were the British concerned so much with? I mean, they'll protest sure. against the government. But, I mean, you know, the colonists, I mean. And so, you know, at the end of the day, that's the message Democrats need to seize right here in this moment where they've walked into our trap, essentially, because the most patriotic thing we can do is get Americans to pay their fair share in taxes, but most especially not the middle class, which are overtaxed, but the sell it as all these people that, that report that just came out two or three weeks ago that showed all these people not paying taxes. Mm. And that's what they need that's the message, I think, that is getting lost in this, is that that's where I think we need to hammer. That's what is the most patriotic thing you can do is pay your taxes, because if we don't, we don't do that, then who's going to fund it? Yeah, well who's said, John. Everybody didn't pay. And that's why you've got this group of, of millionaires and billionaires who call themselves the patriotic millionaires who are uh, out there saying, please raise our taxes. Exactly. These are people who are saying, you know, the story I've told a million times about that, that German businessman who said to the American reporter, I don't want to be a rich man in a poor country. 
And that yep. message just needs to get through. Uh, so yeah, spot on and very well said. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you for the call. Mike in Nashville, Tennessee. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hi, Tom. I'm glad you're taking my call. I love what you do. Uh, you. But unlike the earlier caller who loved your rant, I was a little disappointed in it because I felt that you were confusing economic policy with the ideals of patriotism. And, you know, everything you mentioned, I agree with, but those are economic policies. The analogy I used to my wife, we're in the car together, is if you have two parents and they love their kid and the mother wants to fervorize their child and the father doesn't, one parent doesn't love the child more, you just have a different approach to it. So every example you gave was basically an example of policy, and and you're not more or less of a patriot because you might believe that conservative fiscal policy would be better for future generations versus, you know, supporting welfare. So what's your alternative, you know? Mike? Well, my, my feeling is patriotism is basically you love your country, and that's it. And if you love your child, but you how do you express that kind of, how that love? Do you express that love by you know by doing fireworks on the Fourth of July and saying, "Okay, that's no. it. Now I'm going to cheat on my you taxes," do or do you express that love country. by trying to build your country in a way that that it makes it better, that makes it more equal, that makes it work better for everybody? Oh, I and those are economic you, you, policies. You criticize what you think is wrong, and you want to do what's right. But you're not less of a patriot if someone is a fiscal conservative. And, and that's my point. You're doing, you're falling into the same trap that the right falls into, that if someone doesn't agree with you or doesn't agree with us, therefore you're not a patriot. And that's kind of my problem with what you were saying. Well, what I I'm saying, no, okay, I, going down that road, Mike, what I'm saying, and I'll say it explicitly, that people who, you know, very, very wealthy people who do not want to pay their fair share of the cost of running this country and go out of their way to offload the cost of running this country onto the backs of working people and poor people are, in my opinion, not being patriotic. I think I that's really the antithesis of patriotism. They're greedy and they're selfish, but the problem is unless they start waving the flag of patriotism, that's something different. You know, if you own a store... No, patriotism is not symbolism. It's actions. Right. It, I'm not disagreeing with you, but you can have a different approach to the same actions. And if you don't want to pay a minimum wage and you say, I'm not paying a wage because I'm a patriot, that's just wrong. You're just greedy. But if you believe in a fiscal policy that's different from someone who's a liberal, it's not an issue of patriotism. You know, you, you may be a fiscal conservative and think that I don't want to have my grandchildren saddled with $3 trillion of debt. That doesn't mean you're not a patriot if I want to well, have... Well, that's, that's deficit policy. spending. That's what, that's what Reagan did and Bush did and Bush did and Trump did. I mean, you know, these, these four presidents ran up about $17 trillion worth of debt. A completely different thing from raising taxes. I think I'm understanding your point, Mike, but I'm still disagreeing with it. But, you know, thanks for making it respectfully. I appreciate it. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Persist by Elizabeth Warren. And this is from the first chapter. I'm starting on page 13. It's kind of the end of the introduction, which is titled, You Don't Get What You Don't Fight For. And the headline there, the subhead is, What Do You Bring to a Knife Fight? Elizabeth Warren writes, Nothing we do will be easy. No one with power will give it up readily. Our battles will be hard. Sometimes we'll find ourselves in a knife fight and we'll need our sharpest weapons. But more than anything, the toughest fights will demand that we bring our whole selves. We must bring energy and determination. We must bring clarity of purpose and a richer understanding of our common goals. We must bring a deep down commitment that will sustain us even when the fight looks impossibly hard. This book is not a campaign memoir. It's not a rehash of big public events. It's a book about the fight that lies ahead. It's about the plans we need, no surprise there. And it's about much more than plans. It's about the passion and commitment that underlie those plans and the human connection that will keep us in this fight until we see real change. I write knowing with absolute certainty that if we fail to make major changes, we will plunge our nation and our planet into an abyss from which we cannot escape. I also write with a deep thrum of optimism 
that we are in a moment when extraordinary changes are possible. Much is broken in this country. More than 74 million Americans voted to return Donald Trump to the White House, even as he left our government, our reputation, and even our faith in each other, torn and ragged. In January 2021, his followers stormed the Capitol in an effort to stop the peaceful transition of power that has been a hallmark of our nation from its creation. But even in the darkest hours, I have never stopped believing in the strength of our democracy. Even when hatred has flared and hissed, I have never stopped believing in our capacity to create a better country based on the values we share. I believe right down to my toes that we can build a nation that expands opportunities, a nation that works, not just for the rich and powerful, but for everyone. As I lay sleepless under the covers on election night, I thought about why the fight for change matters so much to me. Why do federal laws and policies wake me up in the morning and keep me up at night? Why do I wade into one battle after another? Why do I get back up after a god-awful loss ready to charge ahead again. Because for me, like the thousands of people I met during my campaign for president, this fight is personal. I bring the pieces of who I am to every battle. I'm a mother and a teacher. I'm a planner, a fighter, and a learner. And, Elizabeth Warren writes, I'm a woman. Together these pieces furnish the foundation for everything I do. They are the lenses through which I see much of this world. They drive me to fight for millions of other people. They make me strong. The stories in this book come straight from my heart to yours. I share them in the hope that they will give spark to the battles you wage and keep you grounded in the righteous fights. And then we go to chapter one. This is where the book kind of formally starts, titled A Mother. I first walked into a classroom as a bona fide teacher in September 1970, and by January or so, I was settling in. The butterflies I'd felt in the first few weeks were gone. I'd figured out lesson plans, figured out the supply closet, figured out parent conferences, the drop-offs and the pickups, and figured out the pecking order in the all-important teacher's coffee room. I was a first-year teacher at Riverdale Elementary School in Riverdale, New Jersey. I loved these children, and I loved this work. Finally, here I was, 21 years old, doing exactly what I wanted to be doing. I grew up in Oklahoma, the baby girl in a family of boys. Like every other girl I knew, I was sure I would go to high school, learn to drive a car, get married, and have kids. I knew the plan. Living that plan was what it meant to grow up. But I had one more part to my plan, to teach school. Since second grade, I'd wanted to be a teacher. When my teacher, Mrs. Lee, had put me in charge of extra reading practice with a handful of second graders, I was hooked. There would be no stopping me. For years, I lined up my dollies, Terry, Lee, Susie, Sammy, Tammy, Nursey, Lady, the storybook dolls, and all the rest, and taught school for hours and hours. Of course, Sammy was always the bad boy, and the storybook dolls were empty-headed, but I wasn't discouraged. I kept right on teaching. The road had been bumpy. My mother didn't want me to go to work. Just marry a man who's a good provider, she said. We didn't have money for college. College is for other people, she said. I found out a way to go to college anyway, but I got married at 19 and dropped out. I always knew you would, she said. Found a commuter college I could afford, but my husband got transferred before I could graduate. The book Persist by Elizabeth Warren. And welcome back. Uh, trying to get people who've been on hold the longest here. Richard in Los Angeles. Hey, Richard, what's on your mind? Hello, Mr. Hartman. Um, i got a question. Do you think that Nancy Pelosi should put some teeth into the subpoena process before she starts this this committee? Because these guys are going to do just like McGahn did, and we'll be chasing them for two years. Can't we find them? Can't we put them in jail till they talk? I agree with you. What can we do? I agree with you. I, you know, we can we can let our elected politicians know that we want action. We want to know what happened. We don't. We're not happy about you know a group of people trying to overthrow our country, country by violence. And uh, I, you know, I I share your concern, Richard. I was very distressed 
when uh, the Democrats did not enforce that subpoena against Don McGahn, um, among others. I mean, you know, that was one of dozens, right. you know, right across the Trump administration. They refused. They refused to produce any papers. They refused to produce anything. And uh, it, it, if the Democrats don't learn how to take names and kick ass, they're going to get their own ass kicked. And it's going to happen in 2022. I don't hear them saying anything about the subpoena process. Are we going to go through the same thing again? Well, we'll find out. If we do, I, I suspect that there's going to be some serious hell raising going on. Um, I'm not willing to put up with it, you know, for, for what that's worth. I mean, you know, I, I, I realize this show is a peanut whistle compared to some of the big national media. But to, to the extent that, that I can fight for, uh, you know, on behalf of preserving American democracy, I fully intend to. Richard, thank, thanks for the call. Your, your point's well made. Marco in Los Angeles. Hey, Marco, what's up? What's up is where false patriotism began, uh, and it was with a divisive uh, 60s anti-hippie right-wing slogan, my country, right or wrong. Yeah, and America, love it or leave it. Yeah. Exactly. But what those, uh, you know, those illegal war supporting the Vietnam supporting Archie Bunker faux patriots never realized was their slogan was incomplete. The complete thought is my country, right or wrong, when right, support it, when wrong, do whatever it takes to right it. Correct. Yeah. And that's where we are. We need to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Very well said. I completely agree with you. Thank you very much Thanks. for the for the call, Mark. Thanks Marco. for taking me. Yeah, okay. my, my pleasure. Good talking to you. Stephanie in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Stephanie, what's up? Hi, Tom. I love your show. Thank you. I just wanted to talk about the national anthem, and I just, I would like to know what we could do to change it. Why do we have to have this particular song for our national anthem anyways? <laughs> Is it written somewhere? No, it, it was it, it was accepted by Congress during the administration of Herbert Hoover. My distant memory comports with that, so I can't say it absolutely, but I believe that to be the case. And, you know, we could, a starting point would be to say that we're just going to drop the third stanza altogether and behave as if it doesn't exist. But I think that, right. uh, you know, America the Beautiful, I, uh, although there's, you know, I mean. Oh, there's so many. Yeah, this land is your land. I mean. Well, the yeah, problem there's... with that is that, you know, to tell that to a Native American. <laughs> you know, this well, land was made for you true. and me. You know, it's, it's a very yeah. Eurocentric song. But, you know, every, there's nothing perfect out there. I don't know of any organized. better than what we have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, yeah. I, I don't know of any organized efforts to, to change. And, and it's, you know, it's, I believe Woody Guthrie wrote it, you know, and he was a, a, a reasonably good guy. Uh, Stephanie, I don't know of any efforts to take it down. Michael in Princeton, Minnesota. So there was a city council member in Minnesota or in Minneapolis who was forced by a mob to sign a document? Yes. Yeah. They had a contract in their hand. They held up her car for an hour and a half and forced her to uh, sign that document. She finally signed it and was able to go on. And after the the news report, right behind that, had an attorney on there and said that she had to sign that under duress, so it does not have any validity. Correct. But Correct. yes, it did happen. And the uh, the protester or whoever this guy was had been involved in some other kind of a protest. So so he's on the record, you know, as far as being a radical. Yeah. So, yeah. See, so this is this is like you know using. The tactics of fascism to pretend to oppose fascism only promotes fascism. It's, you know, this idea that the ends justify the means never works, never has, and never will. Michael, thanks for the verification of that. Susan, Monroe County, Pennsylvania. Hey, Susan, what's up? Hey, hi. Just wanted to make a comment about um, our country. If we're so racist, we would never have voted for a black man twice. And we really need to get back to our Judeo-Christian ways of life because I feel we've taken so much of morality and stability out of everybody that that's why we're seeing a lot of this craziness. I really truly feel black people and white people have been getting along from where I am coming from, from what I've seen, and a lot of, the, a lot of situations are not color, but more cultural. Yeah. I, you know, I've heard that argument from conservatives for years, and I reject it, respectfully, Susan. 
Uh, yeah, you know, I know. I, and I, tell I, tell I, that to somebody, you know, tell that to, to you know, my dad's uh, peer, you know, the, the people who left World War II with my dad who tried to get a house with the GI Bill that my dad got easily, but they were black and they couldn't get it. Uh, th this is real. This is real. And it's still continuing. It's not as bad as it was, but it's still continuing. Wow, what a day. We will be back tomorrow, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It does require all of us, and that means getting involved. And not getting hysterical, just getting involved and making things work. Tag, you're it. See you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.